Chapter 12c. The Kingdom of God is Within You. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by David Shepp. The Kingdom of God is Within You by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Constance Garnett. The Governor, in spite of all the stupefying effect of his surroundings, cannot help hesitating when the moment comes to give the final decisive command. He knows that the action of the governor of Oriel has called down upon him the disapproval of the best people, and he himself, influenced by the public opinion of the circles in which he moves, has more than once expressed his disapprobation of him. He knows that the prosecutor, who ought to have come, flatly refused to have anything to do with it, because he regarded it as disgraceful. He knows, too, that there may be changes any day in the government, and that what was a ground for advancement yesterday may be the cause of disgrace tomorrow. And he knows that there is a press, if not in Russia, at least abroad, which may report the affair and cover him with ignominy forever. He is already conscious of a change in public opinion which condemns what was formerly a duty. Moreover, he cannot feel fully assured that his soldiers will at the last moment obey him. He is wavering, and none can say beforehand what he will do. All the officers and functionaries who accompany him experience in greater or less degree the same emotions. In the depths of their hearts, they all know what they are doing is shameful, that to take part in it is a discredit and blemish in the eyes of some people whose opinion they value. They know that after murdering and torturing the defenseless, each of them will be ashamed to face his betrothed or the woman he is courting. And besides, they too, like the governor, are doubtful whether the soldier's obedience to order can be reckoned on. What a contrast with the confident air they all put on as they sauntered about the station and platform. Inwardly they were not only in a state of suffering, but even of suspense. Indeed, they all assumed this bold and composed manner to conceal the wavering within, and this feeling increased as they drew near the scene of action. And imperceptible as it was, and strange as it seems to say so, all that mass of lads, the soldiers who seemed so submissive, were in precisely the same condition. These are not the soldiers of former days who gave up the natural life of industry and devoted their whole existence to debauchery, plunder, and murder like the Roman legionnaires or the warriors of the Thirty Years' War, or even the soldiers of more recent times who served for twenty-five years in the army. They have mostly been only lately taken from their families and are full of the reconciliations of the good, rational, natural life they have left behind them. All these lads peasants for the most part, know what is the business they have come about. They know that the landowner always oppresses their brothers and peasants, and that, therefore, it is most likely the same thing here. Moreover, a majority of them can now read, and the books they read are not all such as exalt a military life. There are some which point out its immorality. Among them are often free-thinking comrades who have enlisted voluntarily or young officers of liberal ideas, and already the first germ of doubt has been sown in regard to the unconditional legitimacy and glory of their occupation. 
It is true that they have all passed through the terrible, skillful education elaborated through centuries, which kills all initiative in a man, and that they are so trained to mechanical obedience that at the word of command, fire all the line, fire, and so on, their guns will rise themselves, and the habitual movements will be performed. But fire, now does not mean shooting into the sand for amusement. It means firing on their broken-down, exploited fathers and brothers whom they see there in the crowd, with women and children shouting and waving their arms. Here they are, one with his scanty beard and patched coat and plated shoes of reed just like the father they left at home in Kazan or Rizan province, one with gray beard and bent back, leaning on a staff like the old grandfather, one a young fellow in boots and a red shirt, just as he was himself a year ago, he the soldier who must fire upon him. There, too, a woman in reed shoes and panoiva, just like the mother they left at home. Is it possible they must fire on them? And no one knows what each soldier will do at the last minute. The last word, the slightest allusion, would be enough to stop them. At the last moment, they will all find themselves in the position of a hypnotized man to whom it has been suggested to chop a log, who, coming up to what has been indicated to them as a log, with the axe already lifted to strike, sees that it is not a log, but his sleeping brother. He may perform the act that has been suggested to him, and he may come to his senses at the last moment of performing it. In the same way all these men may come to themselves in time, or they may go on to the end. If they do not come to themselves, the most fearful crime will be committed, as in Oriel, and then the hypnotic suggestion under which they act will be strengthened in all other men. If they do come to themselves, not only this terrible crime will not be perpetrated, but many also who hear of the turn the affair has taken will be emancipated from the hypnotic influence in which they were held, or at least will be nearer being emancipated from it. Even if a few only come to themselves and boldly explain to the others all the wickedness of such a crime, the influence of these few may rouse the others to shake off the controlling suggestion, and the atrocity will not be perpetrated. More than that, if a few men, even of those who are not taking part in the affair, but are only present at the preparations for it, or have heard of such things being done in the past, do not remain indifferent, but boldly and plainly express their detestation of such crimes to those who have to execute them, and point out to them all the senselessness, crookedness of such acts, that alone will be productive of good. That was what took place in the instance before us. It was enough for a few men, some personally concerned in the affair and others simply outsiders, to express their disapproval of floggings that had taken place elsewhere, and their contempt and loathing for those who had taken part in inflicting them, for a few persons in the Tula case to express their repugnance to having any share in it, for a lady traveling by the train, and a few other bystanders at the station, to express to those who formed the expedition their disgust at what they were doing, for one of the commanders of a company who had asked for troops for the restoration of order, to reply that soldiers ought not to be butchers 
and thanks to these and a few other seemingly insignificant influences brought to bear on these hypnotized men the affair took a completely different turn and the troops when they reached the place did not inflict any punishment but contented themselves with cutting down the forest and giving it to the landowner had not a few persons had a clear consciousness that what they were doing was wrong and consequently influenced one another in that direction what was done in oriel would have taken place at tula had this consciousness still been stronger and had the influence exerted been therefore greater than it was it might well have been that the governor with his troops would not even have ventured to cut down the forest and give it to the landowner had the consciousness been stronger still it might well have been that the governor would not have ventured to go to the scene of action at all even that the minister would not have ventured to form this decision or the czar to ratify it all depends therefore on the strength of the consciousness of christian truth on the part of each individual man and therefore one would have thought that the efforts of all men of the present day who profess to wish to work for the welfare of humanity would have been directed to strengthening this consciousness of christian truth in themselves and others but strange to say it is precisely those people who profess most anxiety for the amelioration of human life and are regarded as the leaders of public opinion who assert that there is no need to do that and that there are other more effective means for the amelioration of men's condition they affirm that the amelioration of human life is effected not by the efforts of individual men to recognize and propagate the truth but by the gradual modification of the general conditions of life and that therefore the efforts of individuals should be directed to the gradual modification of external conditions for the better for every advocacy of a truth inconsistent with the existing order by an individual is they maintain not only useless but injurious since it provokes coercive measures on the part of the authorities restricting these individuals from continuing any action useful to society according to this doctrine all modifications in human life are brought about by precisely the same laws as in the life of the animals so that according to this doctrine all the founders of religions such as moses and the prophets confucius lao tse buddha christ and others preached their doctrines and their followers accepted them not because they loved the truth but because the political social and above all economic conditions of the peoples among whom these religions arose were favorable for their origination and development and therefore the chief efforts of the man who wishes to serve society and improve the condition of humanity ought according to this doctrine to be directed not to the elucidation and propagation of truth but to the improvement of the external political social and above all economic conditions and the modification of these conditions is partly effected by serving the government and introducing liberal and progressive principles into it partly in promoting the development of industry and the propagation of socialistic ideas and most of all by the diffusion of science 
According to this theory, it is of no consequence whether you profess the truth revealed to you and therefore realize it in your life, or at least refrain from committing actions opposed to the truth, such as serving the government and strengthening its authority when you regard it as injurious, profiting by the capitalistic system when you regard it as wrong, showing veneration for various ceremonies which you believe to be degrading superstitions giving support to the law when you believe it to be founded on error, serving as a soldier, taking oaths and lying, and lowering yourself generally. It is useless to refrain from all that. What is of use is not altering the existing forms of life, but submitting to them against your own convictions, introducing liberalism into the existing institutions, promoting commerce, the propaganda of socialism, and the triumphs of what is called science and the diffusion of education. According to this theory, one can remain a landowner, merchant, manufacturer, judge, official in government pay, officer or soldier, and still be not only a humane man, but even a socialist and revolutionist. Hypocrisy, which had formerly only a religious basis in the doctrine of original sin, the redemption and the church, has in our day gained a new scientific basis, and has consequently caught in its nets all those who had reached too high a stage of development to be able to find support in religious hypocrisy. So that while in former days a man who professed the religion of the church could take part in all the crimes of the state and profit by them, and still regard himself as free from any taint of sin, so long as he fulfilled the external observance of his creed, Nowadays, all who do not believe in the Christianity of the Church find similar, well-founded, irrefutable reasons in science for regarding themselves as blameless, and even highly moral in spite of their participation in the misdeeds of government and the advantages they gain from them. A rich landowner, not only in Russia but in France, England, Germany, or America, lives on the rents exacted from the people living on his land, and robs these generally poverty-stricken people of all he can get from them. This man's right of property in the land rests on the fact that, at every effort on the part of the oppressed people, without his consent, to make use of the land he considers his. Troops are called out to subject them to punishment and murder. One would have thought that it was obvious that a man living in his way was an evil, egotistical creature, and could not possibly consider himself a Christian or a liberal. One would have supposed, in evident, that the first thing such a man must do if he wishes to approximate to Christianity or liberalism would be to cease to plunder and ruin men by means of acts of state violence in support of his claim to the land, and so it would be if it were not for the logic of hypocrisy which reasons that, from a religious point of view, possessions or non-possession of land is of no consequence for salvation, and, from the scientific point of view, giving up the ownership of land is a useless individual renunciation, and that the welfare of mankind is not promoted in that way, but by a gradual modification of external forms. And so man, without the least trouble of mind or doubt, that people will believe in his sincerity, organizing an agricultural exhibition, or a temperance society, or sending some soup and stockings by his wife or children to three old women, and boldly in his family, 
in drawing-rooms and committees, and in the press, advocating the gospel or humanitarian doctrine of love for one's neighbor in general, and the agricultural laboring population in particular whom he is continually exploiting and oppressing. The other people who are in the same position as he believe him, commend him, and solemnly discuss with him measures for ameliorating the condition of the working class. On those exploitations their whole life rests, devising all kinds of possible methods for this, except the one without which all improvement of their condition is impossible, i.e., refraining from taking from them the land necessary for their subsistence. A striking example of this hypocrisy was the solicitude displayed by the Russian landowners last year, their efforts to combat the famine which they had caused, and by which they profited, selling not only bread at the highest price, but even potato home at five rubles the dozen time, about two and four-fifths acres, for fuel to the freezing peasants. Or take a merchant whose whole trade, like all trade indeed, is founded on a series of trickery, by means of which profiting by the ignorance or need of others. He buys goods below their value and sells them again above their value. One would have fancied it obvious that a man whose whole occupation was based on what in his own language is called swindling, if it is done under other conditions, ought to be ashamed of his position, and could not any way, while he continues a merchant, profess himself a Christian or a liberal. But the sophistry of hypocrisy reasons that the man can pass for a virtuous man without giving up his pernicious course of action. A religious man need only have faith, and a liberal man need only promote the modification of external conditions, the progress of industry. And so we see the merchant, who often goes further and commits acts of direct dishonesty, selling adulterated goods, using false weights and measures, and trading in products injurious to health, such as alcohol and opium, boldly regarding himself as being regarded by others, so long as he does not directly deceive his colleagues in business, as a pattern of probity and virtue. And if he spends a thousandth part of his stolen wealth on some public institution, a hospital or museum or school, then he is even regarded as a benefactor of the people on the exploitation and corruption of whom his whole prosperity has been founded. If he sacrifices to a portion of his ill-gotten gains on a church and the poor, then he is an exemplary Christian. A manufacturer is a man whose whole income consists of value squeezed out of the workmen, and whose whole occupation is based on forced, unnatural labor, exhausting whole generations of men. It would seem obvious that, if this man professes any Christian or liberal principles, he must first of all give up ruining human lives for his own profit. But, by the existing theory, he is promoting industry, and he ought not to abandon his pursuit. It would even be injuring society for him to do so. And so, we see this man, the harsh slave-driver of thousands of men, building almshouses with little gardens two yards square for the workmen broken down and toiling for him, and a bank, and a poorhouse, and a hospital, fully persuaded that he has amply expatiated in this way for all the human lives morally and physically ruined by him, and calmly going on with his business, taking pride in it. Any civil, religious, or military official and government employee who serves the state from vanity, or, 
as is most often the case, simply for the sake of the pay wrung from the harassed and toil-worn working classes, all taxes, however raised, always fall on labor, if he, as is very seldom the case, does not directly rob the government in the usual way, considers himself, as is considered by his fellows, as a most useful and virtuous member of society. A judge or a public prosecutor knows that through his sentence or his prosecution hundreds or thousands of poor wretches are at once torn from their families and thrown into prison, where they may go out of their minds, kill themselves with pieces of broken glass, or starve themselves. He knows that they have wives and mothers and children, disgraced and made miserable by separation from them, vainly begging for pardon for them or some alleviation of their sentence. And this judge, or this prosecutor, is so hardened in his hypocrisy that he and his fellows and his wife and his household are all fully convinced that he may be a most exemplary man. According to the metaphysics of hypocrisy, it is held that he is doing a work of public utility. And this man who has ruined hundreds, thousands of men, who curse him and are driven to desperation by his action, goes to Mass, a smile of shining benevolence on his smooth face, in perfect faith in good and in God, listens to the gospel, caresses his children, preaches moral principles to them, and is moved by imaginary sufferings. All these men and those who depend on them, their wives, tutors, children, cooks, actors, jockeys, and so on, are living on the blood which by one means or another, through one set of bloodsuckers or another, is drawn out of the working class, and every day their pleasures cost hundreds or thousands of days of labor. They see the sufferings and privations of these labors, and their children, their aged, their wives, and their sick, they know the punishments inflicted on those who resist this organized plunder, and far from decreasing, far from concealing their luxury, they insolently display it before these oppressed laborers who hate them, as though intentionally provoking them with the pomp of their parks and palaces, their theaters, hunts, and races. At the same time, they continue to persuade themselves and others that they are all much concerned about the welfare of those working classes whom they have always trampled under their feet, and on Sundays, richly dressed, they drive in sumptuous carriages to the house of God built in very mockery of Christianity, and there listen to men, trained to this work of deception, who in white neckties or in brocaded vestments, according to their denomination, preach the love for their neighbor which they all gainsay in their lives. And these people have so entered into their part that they seriously believe that they really are what they pretend to be. The universal hypocrisy has so entered into the flesh and blood of all classes of our modern society, it has reached such a pitch that nothing in that way can rouse indignation. Hypocrisy in the Greek means acting, and acting, playing a part, is always possible. The representatives of crimes to the ranks and murderers, holding their guns loaded against their brothers, for prayer, priests, ministers, and various Christian sects are always present, as indispensably 
as the hangman at executions, and sanction by their presence the compatibility of murder with Christianity. A clergyman assisted at the attempt at murder by electricity in America. But such facts caused no one any surprise. There was recently held at Petersburg an international exhibition of instruments of torture, handcuffs, models of solitary cells, that is to say, instruments of torture worse than knots or rods, and sensitive ladies and gentlemen went and amused themselves by looking at them. No one is surprised that together with its recognition of liberty, equality, and fraternity, liberal science should prove the necessity of war, punishment, customs, the censure, the regulation of prostitution, the exclusion of cheap foreign laborers, the hindrance of immigration, the justifiableness of colonization based on poisoning and destroying whole races of men called savages, and so on. People talk of the time when all men shall profess what is called Christianity, that is, various professions of faith hostile to one another, when all shall be well fed and clothed, when all shall be united from one end of the world to the other by telegraphs and telephones, and be able to communicate by balloons, when all the working classes are permeated by socialistic doctrines, when the trade unions possess so many millions of members and so many millions of rubles, when everyone is educated and all can read newspapers and learn all the sciences. But what good or useful thing can come of all these improvements if men do not speak or act in accordance with what they believe to be the truth? The condition of men is the result of their disunion. Their disunion results from their not following the truth which is one, but falsehoods which are many. The sole means of uniting men is their union in the truth, and therefore the more sincerity men strive towards the truth, the nearer they get to unity. But how can men be united in the truth, or even approximate to it, if they do not even express the truth they know, but hold that there is no need to do so, and pretend to regard as truth what they believe to be false. And therefore, no improvement is possible so long as men are hypocritical and hide the truth from themselves, so long as they do not recognize that their union and therefore their welfare is only possible in the truth, and do not put the recognition and profession of the truth revealed to them higher than everything else. All the material improvements that religious and scientific men can dream of may be accomplished. All men may accept Christianity, and all the reforms desired by the Bellymans may be brought about with every possible addition and improvement. But if the hypocrisy which rules nowadays still exists, if men do not profess the truth they know, but continue to feign belief in what they do not believe and veneration for what they do not respect, their condition will remain the same, or even grow worse and worse. The more men are freed from previation, the more telegraphs, telephones, books, papers, and journals there are, the more means there will be of diffusing inconsistent lies and hypocrisies, and the more disunited and consequently miserable will men become, which indeed is what we see actually taking place. All these material reforms may be realized, but the position of humanity will not 
be improved. But only let each man, according to his powers, at once realize in his life the truth he knows, or at least cease to support the falsehoods he is supporting in the place of the truth. And at once, in this year, 1893, we should see such reforms as we do not dare to hope for within a century, the emancipation of men and the reign of truth upon earth. Not without good reason was Christ's only harsh and threatening reproof directed against hypocrisies and hypocrisy. It is not theft or robbery, nor murder, nor fornication, but falsehood, the special falsehood of hypocrisy, which corrupts men, brutalizes them, and makes them vindictive, destroys all distinction between right and wrong in their conscience, deprives them of what is the true meaning of all real, and debars them from all progress towards perfection. Those who do evil through ignorance of the truth provoke sympathy with their victims and repugnance for their actions. They do harm only to those they attack, but those who know the truth and do evil masked by hypocrisy injure themselves and their victims and thousands of other men as well who are led astray by the falsehood with which the wrongdoing is disguised. Thieves, robbers, murderers, and cheats who commit crimes recognized by themselves and everyone else's evil serve as an example of what ought not to be done and deter others from similar crimes. But those who commit the same thefts, robberies, murders, and other crimes, disguising them under all kinds of religious or scientific or humanitarian justifications, as all landowners, merchants, manufacturers, and government officials do, provoke others to imitation, and so do harm not only to those who are directly the victims of their crimes, but to thousands and millions of men who they corrupt by obliterating their sense of the distinction between right and wrong. A single fortune gained by trading in goods necessary to the people or in goods pernicious in their effects or by financial speculations or by acquiring land at a low price, the value of which is increased by the needs of the population or by an industry ruinous to the health and life of those employed in it, or by military or civil service of the state, or by any employment which trades on men's evil instincts, a single fortune acquired in any of these ways, not only with the sanction, but even with the approbation of the leading men in society, and masked with an ostentation of philanthropy, corrupts men incomparably more than millions of thefts and robberies committed against the recognized forms of law and punishable as crimes. A single execution carried out by prosperous, educated men, uninfluenced by passion, with the approbation and assistance of Christian ministers, and represented as something necessary and even just, is infinitely more corrupting and brutalizing to men than thousands of murders committed by uneducated working people under the influence of passion. An execution, such as was proposed by Jerkovsky, which would produce even a sentiment of religious emotion in the spectators, would be one of the most perverting actions imaginable. See Volume 4 of the works of Jerkovsky. Every war, even the most humanely conducted, with all its ordinary consequences, 
the destruction of harvests, robberies, the license and debauchery, and the murder with the justifications of its necessity and justice, the exaltation and glorification of military exploits, the worship of the flag, the patriotic sentiments, the feigned solitude for the wounded, and so on, does more in one year to pervert men's minds than thousands of robberies, murders, and arsons perpetuated during hundreds of years by individual men under the influence of passion. The luxurious expenditure of a single respectable and so-called honorable family, even within the conventional limits, consuming as it does the produce of as many days of labor as would suffice to provide for thousands living in privation near, does more to pervert men's minds than thousands of the violent orgies and coarse tradespeople, officers and workmen of drunken and debauched habits, who smash up glasses and crockery for amusement. One solemn religious procession, one service, one sermon, from the altar steps or the pulpit in which the preacher does not believe, produces incomparably more evil than thousands of swindling tricks, adulterations of food, and so on. We talk of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but the hypocrisy of our society far surpasses the comparatively innocent hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They had at least an external relief, the fulfillment of which hinders them from seeing their obligations to their neighbors. Moreover, these obligations were not nearly so clearly defined in their day. Nowadays, we have no such religious law to exonerate us from our duties to our neighbors. I am speaking now of the coarse and ignorant persons who still fancy their sins can be absolved by confession to a priest or by the absolution of the Pope. On the contrary, the law of the gospel, which we all profess in one form or another, directly defines these duties. Besides, the duties which had been then only vaguely and mystically expressed by a few prophets have now been so clearly formulated, have become such truisms, that they are repeated even by schoolboys and journalists, and so it would seem that men of today cannot pretend that they do not know these duties. A man of the modern world, who profits by the order of things based on violence, and at the same time protests that he loves his neighbor and does not observe what he is doing in all his daily life to his neighbor, is like a brigand who has spent his life in robbing men, and who, caught at last, knife in hand, in the very act of striking his shrieking victim, should declare that he had no idea that what he was doing was disagreeable to the man he had robbed and was prepared to murder. Just as this robber and murderer could not deny what was evident to everyone, so it would seem that a man living upon the privations of the oppressed classes cannot persuade himself and others that he desires the welfare of those he plunders, and that he does not know how the advantages he enjoys are obtained. It is impossible to convince ourselves that we do not know that there are a hundred thousand men in prison in Russia alone to guarantee the security of our property and tranquility, and that we do not know of the law tribunals in which we take part, and which, at our initiative, condemn those who have attacked our property and our security to prison, exile, and forced labor, whereby men no worse than those who condemn them are ruined and corrupted, or that we do not know 
that we only possess all that we do possess because it has been acquired and is defended for us by murder and violence. We cannot pretend that we do not see the armed policeman who marches up and down beneath our windows to guarantee our security while we eat our luxurious dinner, or look at the new piece at the theater, or that we are unaware of the existence of the soldiers who will make their appearance with guns and cartridges directly our property is attacked. We know very well that we are only allowed to go on eating our dinner, to finish seeing the new play, or to enjoy, to the end, the ball, the Christmas feat, the promenade, the races, or the hunt, thanks to the policeman's revolver or the soldier's rifle, which will shoot down the famished outcast who has been robbed of his share, and who looks round the corner with covetous eyes at our pleasures, ready to interpret them instantly. Were not the policeman and the soldier there prepared to run up at our first call for help? And therefore, just as a brigand caught in broad daylight in the act cannot persuade us that he did not lift his knife in order to rob his victim of his purse and had no thought of killing him, we too, it would seem, cannot persuade ourselves or others that the soldiers and policemen around us are not to guard us but only for defense against foreign foes, and to regulate traffic and fetes and reviews. We cannot persuade ourselves and others that we do not know that men do not like dying of hunger, bereft of the right to gain their sustenance from the earth on which they live, that they do not like working underground, in the water, or in stifling heat, for ten to fourteen hours a day, at night in factories to manufacture objects for our pleasure, one would imagine it impossible to deny what is so obvious. Yet, it is denied. Still, there are, among the rich, especially among the young, and among women, persons whom I am glad to meet more and more frequently, who, when they are shown in what way and at what cost their pleasures are purchased, do not try to conceal the truth, but, hiding their head in their hands, cry, Oh, don't speak of that. If it is so, life is impossible. But though there are such sincere people who, even though they cannot renounce their fault, at least see it, the vast majority of the men of the modern world have so entered into the parts they play in their hypocrisy that they boldly deny what is staring everyone in the face. All that is unjust, they say. No one forces the people to work for the landowners and manufacturers. That is an affair for free contract. Great properties and fortunes are necessary because they provide and organize work for the working classes, and labor in the factories and workshops is not at all the terrible thing you make it out to be, even if there are some abuses in factories. The government and the public are taking steps to obliviate them and to make the labor of the factory workers much easier and even agreeable. The working classes are accustomed to physical labor and are, so far, fit for nothing else. The poverty of the people is not the result of private property and land, nor of capitalistic oppression, but of other causes. It is the result of the ignorance, brutality, and intemperance of the people. 
and we men in authority who are striving against this impoverishment of the people by wise legislation, we capitalists who are combating it by the extension of useful inventions, we clergymen by religious instruction, and we liberals by the formation of trade unions and the diffusion of education, are in this way increasing the prosperity of the people without changing our own positions. We do not want all to be as poor as the poor. We want all to be as rich as the rich. As for the assertion that men are ill-treated and murdered to force them to work for the profit of the rich, that is a siphism. The army is only called out against the mob when the people, in ignorance of their own interests, make disturbances and destroy the tranquility necessary for the public welfare. In the same way, too, it is necessary to keep in restraint the malefactors for whom the prisons and gallows are established. We ourselves wish to suppress these forms of punishment and are working in that direction. Hypocrisy in our day is supported on two sides, by false religion and by false science, and it has reached such proportions that if we were not living in the midst, we could not believe that men could attain such a pitch of self-deception. Men of the present day have come into such an extraordinary condition, their hearts are so hardened, that seeing they see not, hearing they do not hear, and understand not. Men have long been living in antagonism to their conscience. If it were not for hypocrisy, they could not go on living such a life. The social organization in opposition to their conscience only continues to exist because it is disguised by hypocrisy. And the greater the divergence between actual life and men's conscience, the greater the extension of hypocrisy. But even hypocrisy has its limits. And it seems to me that we have reached those limits in the present day. Every man of the present day with the Christian principles assimilated involuntarily in his conscience finds himself in precisely the position of a man asleep who dreams that he is obliged to do something which even in his dream he knows he ought not to do. He knows this in the depths of his conscience and all the same he seems unable to change his position. He cannot stop and cease doing what he ought not to do. And just as in a dream, his position, becoming more and more painful, at last reaches such a pitch of intensity that he begins sometimes to doubt the reality of what is passing and makes a moral effort to shake off the nightmare which is oppressing him. This is just the condition of the average man of our Christian society. He feels that all that he does himself and that is done around him, is something absurd, hideous, impossible, and opposed to his conscience. He feels that his position is becoming more and more unendurable and reaching a crisis of intensity. It is not possible that we modern men, with the Christian sense of human dignity and equality permeating us soul and body, with our need for peaceful association and unity between nations, should really go on living in such a way that every joy, gratification we have, is bought by the sufferings, by the lives of our brother men, and moreover, that we should be every instant within a hair's breadth of falling on one another nation against nation, like wild beasts 
mercilessly destroying men's lives and labor, only because some benign diplomat or ruler says or writes some stupidity to another equally benign diplomat or ruler. It is impossible. Yet every man of our day sees that this is so, and awaits the calamity, and the situation becomes more and more insupportable. And as men who is dreaming does not believe that what appears to him can be truly the reality and tries to wake up from the actual real world again, so the average man of modern days cannot, in the bottom of his heart, believe that the awful position in which he is placed and which is growing worse and worse can be the reality and tries to wake up to a true, real life as it exists in his conscience. And just as the dreamer needs only make a moral effort and ask himself, isn't it a dream? And the situation which seemed to him so hopeless will instantly disappear, and he will wake up to peaceful and happy reality. So the man of the modern world need only make a moral effort to doubt the reality presented to him by his own hypocrisy and the general hypocrisy around him, and to ask himself, isn't it all a delusion? And he will at once like the dreamer awakened, feel himself transported from an imaginary and dreadful world to the true, calm, and happy reality. And to do this, a man need accomplish no great feats or exploits. He need only make a moral effort. But can a man make this effort? According to the existing theory so essential to support hypocrisy, man is not free and cannot change his life. Man cannot change his life because he is not free. He is not free because all his actions are conditioned by previously existing causes, and whatever the man may do, there are always some causes or other through which he does these or those acts, and therefore man cannot be free and change his life, say the champions of the metaphysics of hypocrisy. And they would be perfectly right if man were a creature without conscience and incapable of moving toward the truth. That is to say, if after recognizing a new truth, man always remained at the same stage of moral development, but man is a creature with a conscience and capable of attaining a higher and higher degree of truth. And therefore, even if man is not free as regards performing these or those acts, because there exists a previous cause for every act, the very causes of the acts, consisting as they do for the man of conscience of the recognition of this or that truth, are within his own control. So that though man may not be free as regards the performance of his actions, he is free as regards the foundation on which they are performed. Just as the McKinnian, who is not free to modify the movement of his locomotive when it is in motion, is free to regulate the machine beforehand so as to determine what the movement is to be. Whatever the conscience man does, he acts just as he does and not otherwise, only because he recognizes that to act as he is acting is in accord with the truth, or because he has recognized it at some previous time, and is now only through inertia, through habit, 
acting in accordance with his previous recognition of truth. In any case, the cause of his action is not to be found in any given previous fact, but in the consciousness of a given relation to truth, and the consequent recognition of this or that fact as a sufficient basis for action. Whether a man eats or does not eat, works or rests, runs, risks, or avoids them, if he has a conscience, he acts thus only because he considers it right and rational, because he considers that to act thus is in harmony with truth, or else because he has made this reflection in the past. The recognition or non-recognition of a certain truth depends not on external causes, but on certain other causes within the man himself, so that at times under external conditions apparently very favorable for the recognition of truth, one man will not recognize it, and another, on the contrary, under the most unfavorable conditions, will, without apparent cause, recognize it. As it is said in the Gospel, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That is to say, the recognition of truth, which is the cause of all the manifestations of human life, does not depend on external phenomena, but on certain inner spiritual characteristics of the man which escape our observation. And therefore man, though not free in his acts, always feels himself free in what is the motive of his acts, the recognition or non-recognition of truth. And he feels himself independent not only of facts external to his own personality, but even of his own actions. Thus, a man who, under the influence of passion, has committed an act contrary to the truth he recognizes, remains nonetheless free to recognize it or not to recognize it. That is, he can, by refusing to recognize the truth, regard his action as necessary and justifiable, or he may recognize the truth and regard his act as wrong, and censure himself for it. Thus, a gambler or a drunkard who does not resist temptation and yields to his passion is still free to recognize gambling and drunkenness as wrong, or to regard them as a harmless pastime. In the first case, even if he does not at once get over his passion, he gets the more free form it, the more sincerely he recognizes the truth about it. In the second case, he will be strengthened in his vice and will deprive himself of every possibility of shaking it off. In the same way, a man who has made his escape alone from a house on fire, not having had the courage to save his friend, remains free, recognizing the truth that a man ought to save the life of another, even at the risk of his own, to regard his action as bad and to censure himself for it, or, not recognizing this truth, to regard his action as natural and necessary, and to justify it to himself. In the first case, if he recognizes the truth in spite of his departure from it, he prepares for himself in the future a whole series of acts of self-sacrifice, necessarily flowing from this recognition of the truth. In the second case, a whole series of egotistic acts. Not that a man is always free to recognize or to refuse to recognize every truth. There are truths which he has recognized long before, or which have been handed down to him by education and tradition, and accepted by him on faith, and to follow these truths has become a habit 
a second nature within him, and there are truths only vaguely, as it were distantly apprehended by him. The man is not free to refuse to recognize the first, nor to recognize the second class of truths. But there are truths of a third kind, which have not yet become an unconscious motive of action, but yet have been revealed so clearly to him that he cannot pass them by, and is inevitably obliged to do one thing or the other, to recognize or not to recognize them. And it is in regard to these truths that the man's freedom manifests itself. Every man during his life finds himself in regard to truth in the position of a man walking in the darkness with light thrown before him by the lantern he carries. He does not see what is not yet lighted up by the lantern. He does not see what he has passed, which is hidden in the darkness. But at every stage of his journey, he sees what is lighted up by the lantern, and he can always choose one side or the other of the road. There are always unseen truths not yet revealed to the man's intellectual vision, and there are other truths outlived, forgotten, and assimilated by him. And there are also certain truths that rise up before the light of his reason and require his recognition. And it is in the recognition or non-recognition of these truths that what we call his freedom is manifested. All the difficulty and seeming insolubility of the question of the freedom of man results from those who tried to solve the question imagining man statutory in his relation to the truth. Man is certainly not free if we imagine him stationary, and if we forget that the life of a man and of humanity is nothing but a continual movement from darkness into light, from a lower stage of truth to a higher, from a truth more alloyed with errors to a truth more purified from them. Man would not be free if he knew no truth at all, and in the same way he would not be free and would not even have any idea of freedom if the whole truth which was to guide him in life had been revealed once for all to him in all its purity without any admixture of error. But man is not stationary in regard to truth, but every individual man as he passes through life and humanity has a whole in the same way is continually learning to know a greater and greater degree of truth, and growing more and more free from error. And therefore men are in a threefold relation to truth. Some truths have been so assimilated by them that they have become the unconscious basis of action. Others are only just on the point of being revealed to him, and a third class, though not yet assimilated by him, have been revealed to him with sufficient clearness to force him to decide either to recognize them or to refuse to recognize them. These, then, are the truths which man is free to recognize or to refuse to recognize. End of chapter 12c, recorded by David Shep, Los Angeles, California.